0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: Uh, if you've been listening today to this station, Scott Thompson, to Bill Kelly, or the last couple of days to any newscast, basically, you have been hearing the story of Elizabeth uh, Wetlaufer, who is a nurse out of Woodstock, who has now been charged with eight counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of eight elderly nursing home residents. And you've probably heard all about this now that it's. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Of course it is. How could it not be? Here's the troubling part of this story, to me anyway. Most of the families, when you hear them talking to the media, most of the families are indicating that they didn't seem to know that their loved ones had actually been murdered. They... from everything I'm hearing, they seem to think most of them seem to think that they, that their loved one, their grandfather, grandmother, parent had just passed away from natural causes. And this, I have to believe creates all kinds of questions and concerns for people who actually have parents, grandparents, loved ones of any kind in nursing homes. So joining me to talk about this, Dr. Carolyn Byrne is the associate Dean and director of the McMaster School of Nursing. Uh, She joins me now, doctor, thanks for doing this tonight.
2: Uh, good to talk to you, Scott.
1: What was your response when you first heard this story? And I don't mean emotionally. I mean, of course, it's a terrible story. I'm sure you were very saddened, like everyone else was. But beyond the tragic part of this, your response to how this could have happened? Because I'm wondering if it strikes you as someone who teaches nursing, works in nursing, that this would have taken someone who is exceptionally cunning and stealthy to pull something like this off? Or honestly, In a nursing home with frail seniors, would this be something reasonably easy to do if someone was so inclined?
2: Well, uh, first of all, these kind of events are extremely rare. Of course, and thankfully. Uh, Yes, thankfully, yeah. So, um, of course, I was shocked. Um, And in any hospital or long-term care, there are all kinds of protections um and uh, checks around the giving of medication now i don't know uh, what medication was used because i don't think the police have said i don't even know if it, uh, if it was one medication or many um so it's it's not easy to do um and the other thing is is most people working in long term care are caring and compassionate people who love working with the elderly. So it it was a shock, and it's rare, and incredibly upsetting, as as you mentioned. And I feel for the families. I feel for the families who thought that their loved one died of natural causes and now are having to learn that it's something else. So it's it's tragic.
1: It is. I mean, I can't imagine the shock when you find out that someone that you had buried and loved and mourned was actually killed, it seems. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that that would be stunning to, to yeah, anybody. Absolutely. But absolutely. the reason I asked the question is because clearly... Uh, now, I, I want to back out for a sec. This person, this nurse, has been convicted of nothing at this point. So let's just right. make that clear. So, we don't know for sure what's going on here. We don't know if anything happened for sure. She's simply been charged.
2: Exactly.
1: But if this was the case, it means that she would have been getting away with doing this for some length of time. So I mean, give me a, give me an example then of how this could have flown under the radar. Is it? Is it, does this fall then on administration? Does this, is this, again, would it be easy to do if you had someone who was de- determined that this was something they were going to want to do?
2: Yeah, well, I don't think it's easy to do, but it depends on the type of medication. Um, it depends on the condition of the senior who is there. Um, and um, uh, so there's a whole number of factors. I would not say that it's um uh i would blame it on administration um it it must have been and it was over a space of was it nine years it or? was a long
1: time yeah yes. i can't remember the exact time
2: so there wouldn't be um a- and in two different homes so there wouldn't be any necess- there wouldn't necessarily be a pattern to it and it was so spread over time so it it may go under the radar um, uh, yeah, it, it could have, um, but I think, um, each nurse or physician or whoever is looking after someone in a long-term care facility really is under a professional oath to give the best care. Of course. So something happened here. I, I have no idea.
1: Well, would, it, would I be correct? And I, believe me, I'm not a nurse or a doctor, so I'm, uh, I'm asking the expert here, but would I be correct that a maybe-not-in-perfect-health, quite-elderly person generally would require less medication than somebody who was a healthy, full-health full yes. adult?
2: Yes, you're right on that. And, and lots of elderly people are on multiple medications because sure. they have a lot of chronic conditions. So, um, you know, they're often... Uh, on lots of medication.
1: So it would be then, I would expect, that it would be much more difficult to identify an overdose because you could be just giving someone a typical dose, but for this particular person, it would be much too high.
2: Right, uh, right. That that could happen. And, you know, medication errors do happen um, uh, all around the world, uh, but there's ways of checking them and checks and balances. Um, and I, I don't know whether this... Uh, person that's been accused was working on a night shift or a day shift.
1: Does that make a difference, do you think?
2: Uh, I think it does. I think night shifts are much more quiet. People are usually sleeping, Um, and there's certainly not as many staff on. Um, but I don't. I have no idea of the details of the case. I don't know if anyone of does course. yet.
1: But you alluded to something just a few moments ago, and I, and I, I agree 100. percent And that is, all, every person that I've ever encountered who is a nurse or a worker who works with seniors has been a very. I mean, you have to have a a, a really high level of compassion yeah. to work with people because it, it's a it's a difficult part of nursing. It's it's not an easy thing to do.
2: No, it it isn't. I mean, most people who work in long term term care enjoy it. They love the residents. They, you know, they be they know they get to know the families. They get to know the grandchildren. Um, so they experience joy in that as well. You know, getting to really getting to know somebody is is uh, is a privilege.
1: I know a number of, of young people who have gone into nursing in recent years, and i got to be honest, many of them, a, a large number of them, I'd even say, when you talk to them and you say, what do you want to do with nursing? A lot of them want to go into labor and delivery. That seems to be a very popular area. <laughs> um, a lot of them want to go into surgical. They, I mean, that's something fascinating to them. What kind of competition is there in nursing to work with seniors? Is this an area where there's a lot of people coming out of nursing schools saying, that's my goal, I desperately want to work with seniors, or is it a very much smaller group because it requires a special type of personality?
2: Well, I would say it's probably a smaller group. You're right, the people uh, like... Graduating nurses, pediatrics is another one. Okay, um, uh, where people, uh, where where some graduates like to like to work, or cardiology, or so there are a lot of different areas. Um, but in, I would say all nursing programs within this country, students do a placement in long term care, or they work with the elderly in the community. So students graduating from any program um, in the country would have had an experience either in long-term care or working with um, seniors in the community, in a community center, in their homes, in home care. So all students get that experience.
1: So they would have a taste of whether this was to their liking? Absolutely. And what kind of checks and balances would there are checks, I guess, not so much the balances. What kind of checks if if I was if I was applying if I had graduated as a nurse and I went to a seniors home or a long term care facility and applied as a nurse? Yes. What what would they what would they check of me? What would they try to find out before they just said, "Sure, come and work here"?
2: Well, first they would do an interview and uh, see if you were um, suited to the job, and then they would. Check your registration to make sure you're licensed to practice in Ontario, um, and then they would do reference checks. So, uh, they, if you were just a new graduate, they may call one of the professors, and the you know the student may give a professor's um, uh, name. Uh, they would probably also check if whether the student had, you know, what experiences the well the graduate had in in long term care and whether they've de- ever done any volunteer work in that area, because lots of students do.
1: Okay, so the, the, uh, the bottom line on this, I think, is that there are lots and lots of people, many of them listening, who have parents, grandparents, loved yeah. ones who are in a facility like this. And I'm sure that when they hear a story like this, it does make them flinch a little bit, because it, uh, clearly, even though it's incredibly rare, clearly it can happen. Yes. So you are. And I'm going to put you right on the spot. You're the you're the person who's creating all the nurses coming out of McMaster. Uh-huh. You know this. So you now have a parent or a grandparent who you are going to be placing into one of these facilities. Yes. What are you doing to make sure that they're getting the kind of proper care? And I don't even mean like good food or whatever. The but just to make sure that they are being treated right. What would you be doing if when you yes. go in to visit?
2: Uh, well, that's a very good question, Scott. So I think there are several things that families um, can do when they're um, when they're having to place someone in long-term care, and uh, I'll preface it by saying it's never an easy decision. It's a very difficult decision, often for the family and for the for the elderly person as well. So it just doesn't, well, sometimes it just happens because uh, something goes wrong. But, uh, you know, an ongoing discussion about where the person would like to go, etc., But the other is to well. There's a few things I can think of. One is to get recommendations from people who may have loved ones in a long-term care facility. Check out uh, what other people are saying about it. The other is visit the facility. Go and check it out and see what it's like. Um, So those are and those are two things that um, can help guide putting someone in a long-term care. And I think um, there's a couple of other things that I can think of is when people are visiting their loved one, listen to what they're saying to them, because sometimes they may be saying something, and it it may be a distortion of reality, but there may be some reality to it. So if someone's saying, I'm not happy, um, no one got me dressed or helped me get dressed, or I haven't had a bath in a week, or you know, all those kinds of things, to check them out, to really check them out, not to just um, say, oh, they're confused.
1: I was going to say that. It would be very easy to say, oh, yeah, you know what, part of the reason they're here is because mentally they may not be where they were before, so we don't trust them always.
2: Yeah, yeah. So to listen to them. Um, I mean, there are people, there's a reason they're saying something, and it may or may not be true, but to always check out um, what the person is saying. The other is to develop relationships with staff. So a lot of people um, get to know the staff in long-term care, because you're visiting your relative and you get to know the nurse and the cleaner and all kinds of people, the people in the kitchen, um, so to to foster those relationships with staff so that you have a good relationship with them and they can report on any changes. Uh, but that's the next point um I-, I wanted to make sometimes we have people in long term care that can't communicate as well they may have dementia they're, or they're not talking that's the time that families have to be vigilant for watching for changes in their in their in their loved one so any kind of change in their behavior or change in the way they're getting along now Sometimes those changes are due to the person getting older, getting more frail, um, you know, uh, not feeling as well. I mean, these are old, frail people. Uh, but always uh, watch for changes because it may be a sign of something, that something's going on. And really, families and loved ones have the right to ask you know, as nurses and physicians that are caring for the elderly, um, we expect people to ask. That's part of what we I was going to
1: just, as I let you go, I was going to ask that question because nobody likes, very few people like to actually create conflict. And if you see something with your parent, And you go to the nurse and you kind of feel, well, if I raise this, it's going to sound like I'm accusing them of something now. So I'm just going to not raise it.
2: Yeah. Well, you can raise it. Uh, You can raise it in a way that it doesn't create conflict. I mean, you could point out a change in the behavior. You could, uh, you know, or you could say my my mother said this or my father said that or um, there's ways of doing it. And, you know, we should expect that. We are serving the public. We are serving your loved ones, and so that's part of what we expect to have questions asked, and um, and we deserve to families deserve to get an answer.
1: It's um, you know, it's a it's an unfortunate story to be having to talk about this, yeah, of, of course, but. Um... Uh, again, I think that it's probably, in a horrible way, not a bad time for people to be reminded who have families who are in this position that it's, it's it's you know, keep, keep an eye out.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And it's often really difficult for the families, you know. Sometimes they go and they see their loved one and they're not doing very well. Um, but but um, families have a right to... Um, to ask about, you know, what what the nurse or the doctor thinks is going on with their with their loved one.
1: Uh, doctor Carolyn Byrne, I know you have a dinner to get to. We've held you <laughs> up very long. The associate dean and director of the McMaster School of Nursing. Thanks so much for the time tonight.
2: Oh, you're
1: very, very welcome, Scott. Thanks very much.
2: Take, take care. Bye. If Bye-bye. you,
1: you know, as as she says, if you do uh, this story, let me back up. This story, I think, for a lot of people, again, going to the part of it. That the people who who passed away, the people who allegedly were killed, because it's still allegations, their families didn't know they were killed. This was not a case where they walked into a room and the person had been 100% healthy the day before and suddenly they were gone. These were very elderly, apparently very frail people. And so all their family members simply thought they had passed away in their sleep or just drifted away. And I have to believe that there's an awful, awful lot of people who have families, have loved ones in these facilities now who probably thought about this and went, wait a second. I wonder if my parent, mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather is getting appropriate treatment. And, and truly it's unfair to those people who are working in these facilities and doing it the right way that suddenly now there are a lot of probably crooked eyebrows and questions being asked, but. How can you not, it's incredibly rare as, as she said, but how can you not, how could you not after hearing this at least, and this has happened before, remember we've had other cases, rarely, rarely we've had cases where nurses have been charged with, with doing things, but how do you not now, at least to check, at least to keep an eye out, at least to do your best to make sure that maybe even though it's not to your philosophy that we have to maybe just a little bit not be as trusting as we might have liked to. Even though that nurse is probably incredibly wonderful, maybe we have to be not quite as trusting and just keep a little closer eye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on
0: AM 900 CHML.
1: Let's get into this though. It is, um, there's a a three-part series. Part one is going to be in the Spectator tomorrow morning. Probably by sometime tonight, it'll probably be online at spec.com. And I am telling you that you will want to read this because it is fa- what Terry Pekoski, who's going to join me in just a second, what she's pulled together, what she's found out is a really, really interesting look at the connection between sports, hockey in particular, and money between players who actually can navigate their way through the system and arrive at a destination of major junior hockey or maybe even higher, and cash. You'd better have money if you want to get ahead in hockey, essentially. If your parents don't have dough, you are probably not going to be going anywhere in the game of hockey. It's something that we've thought about and probably discussed and pondered for a while, but Terry has now been able to pull together a whole lot of information and a whole lot of data that backs this up and makes this an established truism, not just a theory. Terry Pekoski from The Spectator joins me now. Terry, how are you?
3: I'm good, Scott. How are you?
1: I'm good. So We're going to get into all the details of this in just a second, but Mm -hmm. essentially, give me the. If you were going to sell this story to someone, if you're telling them what this is about beyond (laughs) what I did, give me the 30 second Reader's Digest version, first of all, and then we'll mine down into it.
3: You know what? I think that everyone realizes that hockey is expensive. It has been written about extensively, uh, but, you know, there's always those stories about the kids that make it despite the odds. What this project shows is that uh, a huge huge number of kids who make it to the OHL um, from Ontario are coming from a certain type of neighborhood which is a a wealthy, well-educated, suburban neighborhood with very low levels of poverty.
1: So the idea Um, of the old days where Bobby Orr or Wayne Gretzky were just skating around on the pond and that's how they got to where they were, those days are gone?
3: It's not happening anymore and and that's something that I think people have been talking about anecdotally for, for a while um, but this actually has has the numbers to, to back it up.
1: Okay, so how do you get these numbers? Well, before I get there, where did this come from? When, what was it that spurred you to suddenly say, you know what, I think someone's got to have some dough to be able to get here. Was there a player? Was there a situation? Was there something that happened that made you realize there must be or there probably was a link between money and hockey success?
3: Well, you know what, there's no shortage of uh, stories, of books, of um, you know, just literature in general that's been produced on the topic uh, about how the sport is changing, how, you know, um, certain opportunities are off limits to, to certain kids. And I noticed, uh, you know, in, in conversations with players in the OHL today, um, just how intensive their training was. So I, I don't think I realized. You know all the things that these kids are doing—everything from power training to, or power skating to personal training—from um, the age of like 11 or 12 years old. And
1: and these are not really, cheap. Sorry. These are not cheap to do.
3: Oh my God, no! The cost—it's thousands of dollars a year that that families are are spending on this sort of thing. So I thought, you know, what we talk about these these two things—the stuff these kids are doing now—and we talk about how you know the game itself is more expensive. Let's put it together and let's see where OHL players are actually coming from. So it's kind of, and it was almost a play on some of the research I I used to do when I covered education and looked at what kids were doing well from certain neighborhoods um, in terms of their sort of academic scores. And I thought, you know what, maybe we could do the same thing for hockey players, see where they're coming from and what that can tell us about you know, the odds of them succeeding.
1: So how do you go about doing that? Where do you find out? You, you, surely you didn't go and talk to every OHL kid and say, give me your address and your parents' income.
3: I did not. I, I approached every team in the OHL individually and asked them for the home postal codes of their Ontario-born players um, because what I can do with those is match it up with uh, demographic data from Statistics Canada to tell me a bit about those certain areas Um Average incomes, housing values, education rates, um, divorce rates, everything like that. So I had the cooperation of 13 of the 20 teams in the OHL, um, which was you know just over 200 players, which is a pretty decent sample size.
1: Who um, did the Bulldogs? Hamilton Bulldogs participate?
3: Yeah, they did. Um, the Bulldogs did uh, well. I mean, the, all the all the big ones that we talk about often on this show, London. Kitchener, um, yeah, you know, most teams, most teams helped out, uh, and, you know, there were seven that, that declined.
1: And what about the league? What was the league's thought pro? Did you get any sense, any feedback from the league on whether they were really happy that someone was going to do a scientific investigation of this to help, or were they kind of trying to get in the way?
3: Uh, you know what? They, I don't think they were thrilled, but I, I think the reason for that more than anything is that generally they they collect this information for, you know, to, to mail things to parents and get in touch with parents and, and so forth. It's not generally so people can do this type of work with it. Um, so I think that that was their hesitation. The league, we did request um, the postal codes we couldn't get from individual teams. We requested from the league, but they
1: declined as well. So you start to plug all these postal codes in, and what begins to be the the pattern, or is there? A, I mean, I'm assuming there's a pattern. So, what was the pattern when you start to see where what's going on here?
3: Yeah, I mean, for for the the sample size that we have, so for those 218 players, what we found was the overwhelming majority, so 80 or 90 percent, came from neighborhoods with um, median incomes above the Ontario average, um, post-secondary completion rates above the Ontario average. Uh, the same uh, very, very low rates of poverty um, and, you know, pretty expensive houses.
1: And you talked to the, the interesting thing is that you've talked to, as I understand, some OHL families who, if you or I were to bump into them in a rink somewhere or bump into them on the street, you mm-hmm. would think they're quite successful. I mean, they've done very well for themselves. And when they talk to you, they basically identified themselves as some of the poor ones
3: well yeah they they kind of make a joke out of it, they say, compared to the doctors and the lawyers and and those types of parents we are we are we 're the poor ones of the group, um even though they're they 're not i mean they 're spending this is a family the one that i 'm speaking about right now spends about twenty five thousand dollars on their two kids to play hockey every year, so which is staggering
1: because I mean, we think yeah. of you know if you sign your kid up for house league as an example, yeah. and I know we 're not talking house league, but that might be five hundred dollars for the year plus if they need to replace any equipment or something like that so maybe maybe eight hundred dollars a year
3: which is still for a lot of families that are living you know hovering uh around the low income cutoff that's still a, a whole lot of money absolutely it is yeah absolutely so, it is so these i mean these prices compared to that are just astronomical but that is the amount of money that you Pretty much need to pay if why? you want your kid to get to the OHL these days.
1: Why? Why? Why can't? Why can't we have kids who are simply Terry, just naturally talented, and they play? Probably. I mean, let's be honest. They're not going to be playing house league and get drafted. But let's say they're playing even double A AA or triple A. Why can't they just play in their league and be scouted? Because scouts are everywhere, and they'll say that kid's got a ton of talent, and we can work with them from there.
3: Well, the scouts aren't everywhere. First of all, they are. Um, generally scouting triple a tournaments and pretty much in uh you know southern ontario in this this belt that runs you know anywhere from ottawa to niagara um and if you're really outside of that it's going to be hard to, to get their attention um the other thing is you know if you even have a double a kid who's not doing these extras and other kids in their peer group are so if they start at 11 12 years old taking power skating lessons uh, doing personal training, doing on-ice skills sessions over and above what they're getting with their hockey league, um, they're gonna they're gonna jump ahead. Their development is going to progress more quickly than the kids who maybe aren't doing all of those things. Even though you know both kids might have the same level of inherent talent, and once one kid starts to pull ahead, it becomes really difficult for, you know, a kid who's not doing all of that stuff to catch
1: up. Well, you know, there's an example, and if people are not even fans of the OHL exactly, there's an example they can see of where this happens. There's a guy who's now playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs who used to play for the Hamilton Red Wings named Zach Hyman. He's a nice kid. And Mm -hmm. his dad is very successful. His dad used to own the Hamilton Red Wings. And I remember when he first played here, when Zach first played in Hamilton, talking with him, and he was not a great skater. And dad rented a rink and a skating coach and five mornings a week, this kid with his brother, Zach, would go with this skating coach and work on his skating. And it, clearly, I mean, he worked very hard. I'm not taking anything away from Zach Hyman because he worked very hard, but he had the opportunity that if you're someone who's living in low-income housing, that that is, that is you wouldn't even be able to afford to play hockey, let alone hire a skating coach.
3: Well, and that's the thing, it, it, you know, and what this series doesn't say is that these kids who do make it to the OHL don't deserve to be there because, you know, they I know firsthand how hard they work and how much they put into their sport and how much they give up to do it. Um, and, and they're exceptional athletes. So it's not to say that they shouldn't be there. It's just to say, you know, maybe there are some other kids who didn't have that chance that could also be really successful.
1: Well, okay. By the way, you said 25000 Is that a legitimate number? Is that really what some people are paying per year to, for their kids to play hockey or a couple of kids to play hockey? So we're talking ten, eleven, twelve thousand 12000 a year per kid?
3: I would say in Hamilton, for a AAA kid these days, the average of most families I spoke to, and this is, say, AAA minor midget, which is the year in which kids get drafted to the OHL, uh, $15,000 was the number I heard most frequently. Um, if you're playing in Toronto in the GTHL, expect that to be higher. So Steve Steyos, for example, who's the general uh the general manager and the president of the Bulldogs, his son plays um north of Toronto, I think in Vaughan. And he estimated he's probably spending around twenty thousand dollars for him to play every year. And he also said, um, because of you know what he knows about development and how it can affect a player's uh you know, chances later on in their career his kid actually spends less time on ice than most of his peers.
1: It makes you wonder how many, or if there are many people out there who are actually going into debt for this. Because there are those who could afford it, even though they, you know, it's expensive. But if you think your kid has great talent, and I don't want him to fall behind and I'm going to just take a loan. And you wonder if those people are out there too, because that's, you know, if you're wealthy and you want to use your disposable income for this, that's your choice. But if you're using money you don't have man, then it starts to get worrisome.
3: Well, I found one survey that said uh, almost 70% of people... Um, sorry, no. <laughs> most people know someone who is going into debt to put their kid through hockey. So it's almost 70% of people who were surveyed know at least one person or themselves who have had to borrow money or dip into their savings or something like that in order to pay for hockey.
1: All right, Terry. So you... Uh, let's play a game here for a second. You are someone who um, doesn't have a ton of money. You're a lower middle class mother in Hamilton. Who's got a son who wants to play hockey. But you know what? If you're a lower middle class person who doesn't have the money, you're not saying I'm going to go on a vacation anyway. You're not saying I'm going to buy an expensive car or buy a big house. We understand at least theoretically that you do what your finances allow you to do. And Mm -hmm. so what's, Playing the the devil's advocate game here. What's the problem then? If you can't, if your kid can't afford to play hockey, why, why are we being bent out of shape just to have them play something else?
3: Well, first of all, I mean we live in a democratic society, and it's not fair. You know, uh, people are supposed to. We, you know, we we have this idea that people are supposed to have opportunities, and if they have some sort of inherent talent, that they should be able to pursue them. Um, So that's one thing, Um, but it's also that, you know, our federal government puts a lot of money into high-level hockey programs here into Hockey Canada, millions of dollars every year, Um, and a lot of that money also flows to the OHL, not directly, but through tournaments and so forth. And it's in the interest of Hockey Canada and the OHL to have the very best talent, I think. And if you're only drawing your talent from a very small segment of the population, surely you were missing out on something.
1: Well, I mean, what it means is presumably, I guess, that some of our best athletes are not going to be choosing hockey.
3: Well, I mean, I, I think, yeah, when you see uh, some of our best basketball players ever coming out of the inner cities, it's not because they're really talented at basketball, even though they are. It's because they're really gifted athletes. So, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons, if they were to direct that talent to a different sport, they surely you know would probably be successful at that too
1: there i mean there's there are people who argue as an example and we could probably do this with hockey for a lot but that if you go to brazil or you go to pick your spot in the developing world the mm-hmm. reason they are so good their national teams are so good at soccer is because every kid who is the top athlete is in that particular sport so you're drawing all the best kids to eventually choose from. If you can have all the best athletes in one sport, you're going to have a high level of play. And North America, we have a lot of choices. So you don't, I mean, a lot of the best athletes go to football or basketball. We don't have them in one sports pool.
3: We don't, but, but historically, I mean, we have had a huge proportion of kids playing hockey, which is part of the reason why our programs have been so successful over the years.
1: It's uh, it's interesting. You know, you know when this is going to actually matter, Terry. I can tell you what. When when what the stuff you've been doing and other people are studying. When this is going to actually matter is when our national hockey teams start losing. Yeah. And absolutely. then all of a sudden, it's going to be a case of what we were just talking about. Why are our best athletes not going into hockey? Why are they going to baseball, basketball, football? We have to find a way to get them back into hockey. And you know what? When that happens. Mm-hmm. Then I think a lot of people may start taking this more seriously.
3: I hope so. I hope so because it's a it's a big problem and it's going to take a whole lot of people to figure out a solution.
1: It's a uh, it's a tremendous series. I, I would encourage people to read it. It starts tomorrow. It goes for three days in the Spectator. Terry Pekoski is the one who's put it together. Um, it's uh, Terry. It's a great job, and I appreciate you doing it tonight. Thanks, Scott. Uh, be sure to read it. Honestly, take some time. It's um it, it, even if you are a marginal hockey fan. It's a really, really interesting read based on the data that she's been able to pull together to, again, establish what I think most people have known for a long time. Hockey is really expensive. Depending on how old you are. By example, if you are 30 years old, you know exactly how expensive hockey is. If you're 40 years old, you probably have a very good idea how expensive hockey is. But let's say you are 60 years old now. And you may not have had the kids in hockey recently and you may not have been in hockey recently and you're thinking, okay, you can buy a stick for 40 or 50 bucks and that's an expensive stick and you can buy skates for 150 or $200 and those are expensive skates and on and on and on. Let me tell you, the world has changed. If you're going to get a decent, a decent, not a great, not a high end, a decent stick today. You're not going under 100 bucks in all likelihood unless you find one that's on a deep, deep sale.
0: Yes. I, uh, I, a couple of years ago, had to buy a stick to play floor hockey with. And the best stick, the cheapest stick I could find that I was willing to use that would not snap just from using it was $55.
1: And that was, and, but if you're talking about now a composite stick and, and all the sticks and that are was composite. A wooden stick Yeah, too. these are all composite sticks now. You're talking... Unless you find a sweet deal, you're talking well over $100 for a stick, and you may go through more than one in a season. Skates, if you can find $100 skates or $150 skates, good for you. There are some out there for sure. But if your kid is going to be playing any kind of level of hockey, they're going to want to have some good skates, and you may fall off your chair if if you've been out of the hockey game for a while, but you could easily... To buy a really high-end pair of skates, get into the six, seven hundred dollar range for skates. It goes on and on and on. And then, as Terry said, if you're a good player, if you're a good player, you're gonna need to keep up with your friends, you're gonna and the people you're competing with for spots on AAA teams, which are the teams that get scouted, which is how you get up. You're gonna need to take power skating. You're gonna need to play summer hockey, you're gonna need to do all these other things. It's not. It's not the way it used to be, and and I think it's a shame in, in a lot of ways. It's not the sh- way it used to be once upon a time, as I say, when Wayne Gretzky just went out on the backyard rink and skated around and then went and played for his local team for the Nadrovsky Steelers in Brantford, and everybody scouted him and saw him, and that was where Wayne Gretzky... Today, today, Wayne Gretzky and the story, the the nice romantic story we have about Wayne Gretzky would be a very different story when the next Wayne Gretzky comes along. And all you have to do is look at what Connor McDavid did. Connor McDavid did not just do the backyard rink like Wayne Gretzky. There were private skating instructors and there was workouts and there was triple A teams and travel and summer league on on and on and on and on and on. That's what it is right now. So if you were to find a kid in the inner city who comes from a low-income family, who happened to have natural, instinctive hockey abilities where he was going to be a star even if he could find the money to get his stuff together to get equipment and to join a local house league team, which is still going to cost you five, I mean, forgetting even the equipment, four or $500 at least. Then you have to play on a rep team because no one's scouting house league, and now double, maybe triple that. Then go to AAA, quadruple, quintuple, as Terry says, get up to eleven, twelve, thirteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars. Boy, it's a daunting thing. Go go read the piece tomorrow for sure. And as I say, it may be online tonight. I'm not sure, but definitely go and read it. It is uh, it is fascinating about our national sport. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine
0: on AM nine hundred CHML.
1: If you're not a fan of The Walking Dead, well, hang with me, although you can probably tell those who are today, or at least you could this morning, by those walking around looking like they've been sucking back gravel and needing motion sickness bags because of what they saw on the show last night. Let me read you a brief description. This is from, what is this from? This is from a Slate, an online magazine, certainly not a magazine that falls into the conservative or, um queasy, generally, type of writing. This is a little more liberal, a little more young, a little more out there. So uh, even Slate, though, had this to say about Walking Dead. But even for a show that takes pride in dreaming up new ways to dismantle the human body, last night's killings were remarkably gory, the bloodiest deaths in the show's history, and perhaps televisions as well. Negan didn't just dispatch Glenn and Abraham with a, by the way, Spoiler alert if you have this on PVR. I a little I suppose, late for that. A <laughs> little late for that, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Um, Negan didn't just dispatch Glenn and Abraham. And by the way, this is gross, so I'm just warning you up front. This is, not, uh, this is not delicate stuff. Negan didn't just dispatch Glenn and Abraham with a single blow to the head. The ex-military Abraham survived long enough to spit his last defiant words in Negan's face. And even though the first swing of Negan's bat shattered his skull and popped his left eye out of his socket... He held on long enough to whimper his pregnant wife's name and promise, I'll find you. Then Negan turned them both into pulp, smashing and smashing until all that was left was a pile of meat for zombies to pick out. So enticing so far? Well, let me tell you, there is a parents group out of the States. I bet you're not surprised by this. The parents television council that has gone a little berserk about this because they're saying this is insane that this stuff is on television. Right. right, because up until now
0: children were definitely well allowed to watch The Walking Dead.
1: No, but the epi- they've written or they said the episode was rated TV MA, re- meaning for mature audiences but they are wondering if there should now be a more severe rating than TV MA. Then, let me take you one more place. Again, not a place that you would expect people to be soft on this or feeling overwhelmed by this. The Guardian newspaper and one of their arts writers. it's and, and what they're talking about, They they lead off with, they're talking about a movie that once upon a time, in 1963, it was an exploitation film called Blood Feast, which was supposed to be the absolutely most horrific movie of its time. It was the bloodiest, it was the most... And it was, but it was kind of almost sarcastically bloody to the point where you could tell that it was just ridiculous. Anyway, it's striking how these thrills, once confined to drive-ins and grindhouses, are now being pumped directly into our living rooms. You can draw a straight line from Lewis's groundbreaking goremongering—that's Blood Feast. To the now par for the course bloodletting on games like or shows like Game of Thrones with its now legendary red wedding, red we, red wedding killing spree, The Walking Dead, and The Ash versus the Evil Dead. But will today's gruesome TV be looked back on as equally quaint and kitsch? And as some things are pushed to the limit of what audiences can stomach, where can things go from what is already a saturation point? And that's really the thing that I find fascinating about this topic. That's why we're talking about it today. I hope I didn't gross you out entirely, although I kind of had to to make the point. If you didn't see The Walking Dead, and I didn't, I've only read about it, and I saw a clip. If you didn't see it, it probably means that you're not interested. I wouldn't go and watch. But essentially, what it was, was by every description, the bloodiest, the most gruesome, the most vicious, the most disturbing fictional killings we've seen on television. And as the Guardian points out, where can things go from what is already a saturation point? And I think that's a really interesting discussion because there's a couple things at play here. The first one is everybody in television, everybody, every show it seems, or nearly every show reaches a point when they decide that they need to do something to make sure they have people's eyeballs. It all goes back. The very first one, if you remember where the phrase comes from, was in Happy Days when Arthur Fonzarelli jumped the shark. Literally. At Caesar's Palace, on his motorcycle, he jumped the shark, or wherever he was, I can't remember if it was Caesar's Palace, but he, on a motorcycle jump, went over a pool of sharks, and that's where the phrase jumping the shark came from, was from Fonzie.
0: And in my favorite little piece of trivia, Happy Days didn't jump the shark when Fonzie jumped the shark. That's That, to me, is the best part, is that the the show actually was still quite successful and well well thought of long
1: after that happened. But for some reason, that phrase stuck. That phrase stuck. And so most shows, many shows have reached, at some point, reached the point where they say, we got to do something to remain relevant. We got to do something to keep people talking about us and keep tuning in. And often, often, and you know what? If you think I'm being naive or being prudish or whatever else, that's fine. That's fine. But many times, oftentimes, the way you keep people's eyeballs is you go with exceeding violence or you go with something more on the sex side of things. You go sexy or you go violent and that's how you keep, people, keep people's attention as the show is beginning maybe to lose a little bit of a grip or that you're, not, you're worried that maybe you're not as a hot property. You want to get people talking about you again. That's the place you go. That's, uh, uh, come on. Is, is anyone going to disagree that that's what happens? No, you're not. And so, this question, though, that the Guardian raises is where can things go from here? If you are already showing, now, again, these are fictional things. So, I suppose that, you know, the answer some people are going to give is we'll have a real killing. Well, they're not going to do that, I, I hope. But where can things go from here? When you have something that even TV watchers who watch this stuff all the time, who are fans of the show, because later on in a number of these stories, It says that fans of the show on social media basically said, I'm out. This was too much. It was too gross. It was too disturbing. I'm not watching anymore. If you've reached the point where fans of the show are saying, nah, fans of a show about zombies killing each other, quite frankly, just to be on, just to be telling you what's going on. They're saying, no, it was too much, but we know that this is not going to be the last step because it never can be. If this is the last step, you can't get any more eyeballs. So someone has to, by definition, then. Push the bounds a little further. That's what always happens.
0: It seems so odd to me that people would draw the line there. Uh, I don't watch The Walking Dead, but I was fascinated by the the story that they they told in the last episode. So I was reading up a lot on it. And and one of the things I did was I watched a list uh, a list video of the top ten deaths, shocking deaths on Walking Dead, and none of them, or basically all of them that were there, were just as bad in my opinion, as the one from Sunday night. And so I don't really know. The only thing I can think of is that that particular character that got killed, the one that everybody's talking about, was uh, a beloved and generally a character that had no faults whatsoever. And so it was kind of maybe people were more angry that he died. But the the manner in which it was shown, um, which you you mentioned earlier, I won't repeat it, uh, is... Uh, shot for shot with the comic book The Walking Dead which is what the show is based on and so that's why they did it it's not like it I mean yeah they didn't have to show it but it's not like they they amped up the gore from the source material that was in the source material that's what it looked like on, on the comic book page
1: be that as it may be that as it may, we are talking about television and I understand that it's on at 10 o'clock or so at night. I understand that it it is a specialty channel, especially in Canada. So not every kid is going to stumble upon and, this. And in the States. And in the States. But the reality is, as they point out, this stuff is now, whereas once you would have had to go to the drive-in movie theater or somewhere else way back in the day or make an effort to go. Get a v- VHS tape or a DVD or whatever. Now it's just popping into your house and guaranteed. I will guarantee you, and I haven't even checked this. Look, you can check this as we're speaking right now. I would be willing to bet money that that scene has arrived as a video somewhere on the internet that you can look it up. You don't even have to watch the whole show. So yeah, some course. kid Of
0: course, it was it was number 1 on my on the list that I was watching. So. Right.
1: So it does so if you're a 13-year-old and you've now heard people saying, "Oh, The Walking Dead was so gross." What's the first thing you're going to do? Are you going to say, "Oh, I don't know." Or are you going to go? Now, here's the problem I have with this. And again, feel free to disagree with me. Feel free to say that I am just prudish and that I have no stake in this because it's just fictional violence. It's not real. And don't and and people will say, well, don't don't tell me that kids who watch violence are prone to violence. I have no idea if that's true or not. I really don't. I have no idea. There are different studies that would say one or the other. There are studies that say kids who play violent video games are more likely to be violent. I. I I don't know. I don't have any, I don't,
0: there are more studies that say they aren't
1: fair enough. But I, but the point is I don't have the science. I'm not standing here saying if you play a violent video game, if you watch the walking dead and you see people fictionally getting murdered on this show, you're going to go out and do it. But I will say this. There is a reason why advertisers show their ads over and over and over again on TV and the movies, wherever else. There's a reason they do this because clearly they are spending tons of money. There is enough science. There's enough research that says, if you show something over and over and over, it does burrow into your brain. If you hear a jingle enough times, you do start to become familiar with that. We did a quiz question a while back where we played and I asked, and it was probably one of, I don't know how many calls Luke got that night. It was one of the biggest responses we ever got to a quiz question, maybe the biggest. We played the, I'd like to teach the world to sing jingle, where all the people from around the world were standing on the top of a mountain. And I asked that night, I said, what product was this? And I don't think Luke got off the phone for the whole night because everybody who was alive when that commercial existed knew that was Coke because it had effectively, people had heard it enough, seen it enough that it had burrowed into their brain like a brain worm. Well, I, if, if commercials have that ability, if, if fast food places show their commercials at times when they know that people are going to be watching and eventually they're going to get hungry and say, oh, I could go for one of those burgers. They don't advertise and spend all the money. They don't, adver- advertisements in the World Series right now are $500,000 for a 30-second spot because the Chicago Cubs are drawing a big audience. Companies are not paying $500,000 to show one ad if they believe that it has no impact. They believe that if you show it over and over and over and over that that eventually people's minds will change some people, not all, not all. It doesn't have to be all, but they believe that if they show it enough, some people's minds will change and you will begin to be interested in the product or desensitized to the product or whatever else it is. And so that's, to me, that's what this story is about. I don't believe Regardless of what different studies might say, and as Luke pointed out, some say yes, some say no, more say no, but I don't believe that if you watch the walking dead, that you are going to go and club somebody to death with a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. That's how that it was gross. But if you watch violent images enough on television, does it not strike you that it must desensitize you in some kind of way? If advertising is the repeated viewing of something to make your brain work slightly differently and perceive something differently, how can we then say advertising does it but viewing a show doesn't do it? How can we say that seeing this happen over here works but this over here doesn't work when it's essentially the same thing? And so when I when you see these stories and Not everybody is watching The Walking Dead on a loop. Again, different thing. But if you watch show after show after show and it's nothing but violent images, and so many of them are, and what they're saying now is we're reaching a point where you're almost running out of ideas of ways to try to shock people. You're almost coming, it's almost getting difficult to find new ways that will make people buzz about your show because. After you've beaten someone's brain in on screen with a barbed wire covered baseball bat and left them as a bloody pulp with an eyeball popping out of their head, and that's what it was, where do you go from there? And while I am not, and if you listen to this show regularly, you know that I am absolutely person number one in the non censorship department. I don't believe in censorship. What I believe in is perhaps a little more of self-censorship or responsibility. And if people want to make this stuff, they have a right to make this stuff. If I want to say what I want to say, someone else has a right to say what they want to say as well. I have to expect that. But there is a point at which somehow we're losing, it seems to me, out of an urgency to be talked about, out of an urgency to somehow remain relevant, that we are jumping sharks left, right, and center and doing things that become ridiculous
0: i think the article just cherry-picked shows that that helped itself I, I mean the walking dead and ash versus the evil dead are both in the gore horror genre uh ash versus the evil Dead's more of a comedy and the walking dead's a drama but it's still like that's that is their selling point is that that is where the horror comes from it's not from a jump scare although i'm sure they do that too it's it's from the gore um it, when it comes to game of thrones which is the show that i do watch it's when when you talk about using sex and violence to try and attract eyeballs, the show was absolutely guilty of using um, using nudity and sex to try and attract eyeballs early on in its run. Less so later, but I've never once watching that thought the violence was over the top. It was it was no worse than I'd ever seen in an R rated movie. When 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 you go and watch these, and 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 I I am not the kind of person who goes to watch a movie thinking I hope this has all the gore in it. I it's I'm talking like.
1: Uh, an r-rated movie like the departed okay ultimately though we got to go to break ultimately my question is this and once again i'm going to say this for the third time if you think i am just a prudish choir boy fine send me a note radley at 900 chml.com if you think that's the case. but here's the question if we back in 1970 whatever had x as the limit of what we were going to put on tv And in 1980, we had Y. And in 1990, we had Z, And then in, I should have started earlier because I've run out of letters, but on and on. And we are now at the point where essentially they are showing on the air, bloody bludgeonings and beatings. And again, this is not at a movie theater. This is not where you're paying your money specifically to go and watch this. Where is the next step? What is the next step if the idea is that we have to keep people interested and we have to keep eyeballs on our show? Where is the next step that you take? What would be the thing, I guess, what would be the thing that would be so outrageous now, that would be so offensive, that people would actually say, oh, did you see that last night? because that's where we're going. Luke pointed out before we came on here that there is a character in this show who is a pregnant woman. And he said, and I agreed with him, there's no ch- you knew that character wasn't going to be harmed because there's no way they would ever allow a pregnant woman to be killed on this show. That's so far beyond the pale. Keep that in mind because you know where they're heading. And if there's nothing left to shock if there's nothing left to cover for writing that maybe isn't getting the same attention and storytelling that isn't getting the same attention and you have to do something that's going to shock people into tuning in there are very few places left to go
0: the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 am 900 chml